Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. We are here. I'm Mandy. (laughs) And this is our dirty laundry. And we're back to do our laundry. We're here to do our laundry. Our podcast (laughs) tries to look through history, although lately we've been in more modern times. I feel like the last 10, 20 years. Uh, But we keep Mm -hmm. digging through history to learn how to be better in the present as white, straight, cis upper middle class, currently able-bodied white women uh, to figure out how our people have engaged in fuckery for so long, continue to, and how we can do better, how we have to do better. Yeah, hopefully. And I'm not so sure that we can, but we're going to try. After the last couple episodes, I was like, maybe the best thing we can do is like host a convention and then just like keep everybody there forever. Out of the way, you know, like, I don't want to do harm to anybody. I don't, but I, I'm just like, just come over here and then just never bother anybody ever again. (laughs) Right. We lure them in with some sort of like pink pens and like a yoga pants sale. Fancy notepads. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Some champagne at brunch. Rosé. Just like dancing this way. I know. I mean, I know it, it just, it, it does feel sometimes like it personally and in all of the stuff that we're learning, just, I don't, I don't always trust myself, you know, and it, that it just is, yeah. um, it is frustrating for me. And I imagine exponentially more frustrating for everybody else who ever has to deal with white women, honestly. Yeah. For reals. We're real shit. So <laughs> God damn it. That's- we can do better. We can do That's better. The, focus. The, the thing is, there are like a handful of white women who I, I think are just like, you know, have have done better. So I know that it's possible. It's just so rare. It's sad. It's exhausting. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to we're going to talk about girl bosses mm-hmm. today. And I so we'll get into that whole thing. But <laughs> Just this beginning of the conversation reminds me of a quote from one of the articles I think is a good way to start off. And it says, for the girl boss theory of the universe to cohere, women have to be inherently good and moral creatures, or at least inherently better than men. And I guess what we're finding is I'm not (laughs) sure that's true. Pretty sure it's not true. Remember, um, it all falls apart. Jones Rogers book about white women's involvement in slavery. And we were so lucky to to be able to talk to her and have a conversation about like the, the just straight up sadism and, and creativity Mm -hmm. of cruelty that white women express during slavery, you know, that it's, Yeah. yeah, definitely not better. I mean, that being said, I think when you, when you think about systems and not necessarily like individual people, it's how, it's how you can mm-hmm. be a white person who rejects whiteness, you know, or who works against mm-hmm. white supremacy. Like, I don't think there's anything like inherently moral, especially about white women, for sure. That being said, I think like 
patriarchy and masculinity and like the, you know, there, there is something worth fighting for to embrace something that isn't that, I don't know. That's like the least articulate yeah. thing I've probably ever said on this podcast, but I, I think there's like something <laughs> worth fighting for about, I don't know. It, it just makes me, yeah. Now I'm in a pit of despair, just thinking like, Oh God, what's the point? But they're like, that's not helpful <laughs> to anybody. That's not helpful to anybody. You know, I will say no, that no, no. what, and maybe we'll get there by the end of this. We'll fix it in the next 40 discussion. minutes. We'll come up. Some I bet ideas. we will. Yeah, that's yep, right. Stay tuned. That's what we're listeners for all the solutions <laughs> in the next 40 minutes. Um, you know, I think for me, and I know we've said this before that the most powerful learning that I've done as part of this podcast has been looking at how white supremacy in particular, but also how it connects to capitalism, ableism, sexism, mm-hmm. heterosexism, all of it, how, mm-hmm. how deep it runs in progressive liberal leftist circles. And I think today's oh my gosh. episode where we look at the girl boss, it's like the woke CEO. I'm putting that in quotes, you know, mm-hmm. um, people who probably donate a ton of money to like the democratic party, let's say, or, you know, to progressive causes and yet are really enmeshed in some like awful stuff. And in this case, yeah. I think, the story of the girl boss, especially white women held up as the model of the girl boss just shows how complicity with capitalism is never a great idea. I think. Yeah, never, never. It always goes real awry. Um, and I, and I think like the other, like ableism, privilege, cisgenderism, all of that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Also, it just plays into so many of the times that we end up just shooting ourselves in the foot um, this is not related today to today's subject at all, but related to like the um, present issues going on with Roe versus Wade mm-hmm. and abortion mm-hmm. rights. So off topic for one second, and then let's get How very dare you go off topic. Watch. I know, right? This is <laughs> we so are the weird, most so organized <laughs> communicators out there. Uh, yeah. Um, but it reminded me of, I just watched a documentary about the woman who was, Jane Roe in Roe versus Wade. Um, and I think it's called Jane. I'm trying to find it. Didn't she like come out like as anti-abortion at some point and then, and then actually like took that back that they had just paid her to say that. Right. Right. So the thing is, she, I think she, this is, this documentary is kind of directed under her direction, not like she actually directs it as director, but it's under her desire to get her story Mm -hmm. out there. And part of that story really seemed like she turned away from the pro-choice abortion rights movement because she was snubbed by the upper class white privileged women that were running it. She was really like, she did not have money. She was not like a beautiful person. She did not present as like this really cultured individual. And so the people that were heading that movement just pushed her to the side. She would go to like all of these rallies. She would be there and they wouldn't let her speak and they wouldn't put her on camera. And she felt really basically just rejected by that whole movement. And so then when the right to life people got a hold of her and started paying her money to be on their side, she was like, well, 
I'm going to do what's best for me because I'm always getting screwed in this situation. Mm -hmm. So I might as well just take this and run with it. So then for the next few decades, she got paid over half a million dollars from them to do their speaking at the end of her life. And in this documentary, she states that she is definitely pro-choice and thinks that it should be up to women. But she didn't feel like she was represented by the pro-choice movement either. And I think that's where people who are in activism really have to look at ourselves and say, you know, like, who are we representing? What, as we say, like, what voices are we leaving out? Like, who do we think is in our circle versus not? And well, and I do think there's a connection to girl bossness because so much of it is a, the aesthetics and like the performativity yes. of inclusivity or, you know, the, the women who got labeled girl boss or who identified as girl boss all have this very similar, like cool girl vibe, like a, an aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, let's get into it. I know there's a, there are a few okay. articles I want to shout out right at the beginning. I know we were laughing that so many articles are from the Atlantic. I don't know why. Um, yeah. someone's got a like <laughs> ax to grind with girl bosses over there. Um, one was by Amanda <laughs> Mull called the girl bosses left the building Another by Alex Abed Santos, whose journalism I love at the Vox, called The Death of the Girl Boss. You'll see a theme here. Another from Samira Mukapudi, um, Mukapudi, I think I'm saying her name right. Uh, she just stepped down as the editor of Teen Vogue, which is one of my favorite publications lately. It's so good. Her article is The Girl Boss is Dead, Long Live the Girl Boss. So there, like a lot of the articles <laughs> I was pulling from were marking the the backlash against girl bossness that's happened in the last few years. I don't know. What were you reading? What were you looking into? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Similar things. I mean, the Atlantic for sure. I had to buy myself a subscription to it, (laughs) to read the articles that I wanted to, because I hit my limit. So they got me. I was like, Oh, I guess I'll get my information elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was like, I can pay for this. I suppose. Um, I read a lot of things on the Atlantic. It only seems fair, but yes, the girl bosses left the building is kind of where I stopped. I think you or started. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. the one you mentioned. And then it kind of took me to, um, just different things that they had linked in there about like the whole lean in. Oh, we'll um, talk about lean in and the backlash to that. And there's an article called a lack of confidence. Isn't what's holding back working women by Stephanie Thompson. Um, there is a whole show called oh, girl yeah. boss that only lasted a season. Cause it looked pretty terrible oh. <laughs> when I looked at the trailer. Um, but there was a article about like, what does a girl boss look like talking about mm-hmm. that show by Sophie Gilbert. And then the article that I really liked was actually on medium. Did you oh, mention? Oh yeah. I really liked this one yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. The end of the, yeah. The end of the girl boss is here by, that Lee, one, Stein. by Lee yep. Stein. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was one other one from yeah. business insider that I read the fall of the girl boss is a good thing. I don't know. There's others that I'll shout out, but, but they're all, they all have like death decline fall, like those kinds of metaphors, because there has been a lot that has happened in the last couple of years around girl boss, boss, babe, CEO, boss bitch. I think there's a lot of variations of it, but basically this idea of hashtag girl boss. So what were, I've got some background on, um, two of the women, one who coined the term and then one who like it helped it expand quite a bit. Um, just before we get into like individual people affiliated with this, what did you, as you were reading or even just your 
knowledge the last decade about this idea of girl boss and its connections to girl power from last week or like the different waves of feminism or different iterations of feminism. What attributes do you think of that go along with a girl boss? I think the things that we kind of have touched on superficially, just its connection to capitalism Mm -hmm. and making money and power but then also this incorporation of individualism in it Mm -hmm. that it's up to each individual person, like the idea that you can succeed if you try hard enough. It's about your effort. It's about your motivation. It's about your hustle rather than addressing any of the systemic problems that hold people back from succeeding. Yeah. Um, and girl boss does nothing to address those. It's all about the whole culture of work harder, do more. And that's the problem. Yeah. I kept seeing the word hustle that came up a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course I think the other phrase that we'll talk about today to lean in, you know, like this individual empowerment bootstrappy kind of mentality and, and like a full, throated embrace of capitalism and and this idea like you can be as successful, more successful than the men, you know, just embrace. And I think like bring yourself. So many of the girl bosses were, were slash are in charge of like beauty, fitness, wellness companies. And so there's all of this like aesthetics of being a particular kind of like looking pretty as being the, the Mm -hmm. business model so it's, there are some like Cheryl Sandberg will talk about that are in the world of tech, but almost all the companies have this like aesthetic, you know, like it's about how you look. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's mm-hmm. that. And I think there's um, a lot of, uh, even when this was not remotely true, there's like, because of the hustle, this idea that girl bosses are self-made. Like if I can do it, you can do it. Even though so many of the women mm-hmm. who got tagged as girl asses were born into incredible wealth. Um, yep. This is like Kylie Jenner, uh, Forbes or some business magazine had said she's the first self-made female billionaire. And people were like, self-made? <laughs> self-made. How does that Quotes. work? Um, Grace Beverly, <laughs> Rachel Hollis, like a lot of these, um, you know, people who like married into or were born into really incredible wealth. Um, so I think that is also an element of it there for the most part too, I couldn't find someone identified as a girl boss who wasn't white. I don't know. Did you find examples or I not, no, not individuals. I mean, I think most of these articles make the point of saying that the vast majority of these women are white to the point where I didn't have any examples of black women. So, yeah. Um, there was a little bit of historical context I wanted to get into, like where this term even comes from and connect it to the girl power of the spice girls we were talking about before the riot girl kind of energy from before that. Um, so Mm -hmm. it, one place to start the story is in the early 20 teens when there's this like burst of the use of the word feminism, Beyonce performs, um, at the MTV Music Video Awards in front of like giant feminist, that big light up yes. feminist Boom. thing behind her. Um, yep, I which, remember by the it. way, last night I had a dream 
that I was friends with Beyonce and Dolly Parton and I was like <laughs> getting them together to like write music together. And I was really excited about that. Is that just <laughs> let's make that bonkers. happen. Like, literally my wildest <laughs> dreams would come true, but yeah, that's oh, not the first time I've great. dreamt that. Like one time I dreamt that I was trying to like, get into Jay-Z and Beyonce's house. I don't know what that's about. I don't even listen to Beyonce's <laughs> music that much. I mean, I admire her a lot. I like her music a lot. It's so weird. I don't know. Probably someone out there is like psychoanalyzing Ooh. me and it's not pretty, whatever the results are. But anyway, last night, Adele <laughs> and Beyonce were like having drinks at my house and get, getting creative together. And I was really excited about it. Um, oh, wow. Also wow. in the early 20 teens, Emma Watson, the actress who played Hermione, um, I mean, mm-hmm. other things too, but I, that's what she's most known for. Yes. But she gave a speech called Why I'm Feminist, Why I'm a Feminist at the United Nations. Um, and that mm-hmm. went viral. And so there was just kind of like resurgence of this term that was in the zeitgeist. Um, however, there I read someone's dissertation um, that I thought was so good. And I actually want to reach out to her to see if she'd want to come talk to us because the dissertation was all about a, a critique of girl boss, but it also got into a critique of goop and wellness culture. And I was like, Oh my Mm -hmm, God, I'm here for this mm -hmm, all day long. mm -hmm. I cannot wait to talk more about that particular spinoff of this. And I know you being a healthcare professional and someone Mm -hmm. medically trained, I can't wait to hear what you think about vagina eggs. So, okay, we'll get into all of that. But (laughs) um, this is Frankie um, Mastrangelo. I God, I'm butchering everyone's name. M-A-S-T-R-A-N-G-E-L-O. Hopefully we're able to connect with her and, and talk to her because this dissertation was super interesting. But she actually dials it back even further to look at what was happening in like the 1960s and 1970s. And this is when neoliberalism was starting to become an ideology um, of liberals like versus like radical leftist politics. So thinking about Mm. people on the left and we see this absolutely in democratic politics today, like people on the left who are anti-capitalist and then people on the left who are like pro-capitalism, but just Mm -hmm. want things Mm -hmm. to be more fair, let's say, but they're not anti-capitalism. They haven't made all those connections yet. So this idea of neoliberalism um, as like, Oh, private, companies can manage things better. We should trust, you know, the market to work out these kinks, et cetera. This is not the world's best description of neoliberalism, but basically this idea of um, privatization, individualization versus like a more radical collective project. So in the 60s and 70s, and we've talked about this a little bit uh, during this season, that this is when we have uh, black feminist socialists like Audre Lorde, Beverly Smith, Barbara Smith, many of these also queer black women that were really making all these connections between racism, sexism, capitalism, ableism, et cetera. We had talked about the Combahee River Collective in 1977, which is mm-hmm. just like the exact opposite of Girl Boss. It's very, very intentionally making these connections of oppressions, how they interlocked, how they intersect how they connect to global issues. We've talked a little bit about third world feminism um, and thinking about the ways that it's only middle upper class, straight, cis, white women who stand to benefit from feminism with capitalism, especially 
upper class mm-hmm. white women in particular, like that those intersections really matter. And so you have this split. Um, and then in the eighties, there's like how feminism is morphing is this one sort of like one stream that's much more radical and intersectional. And then one stream that's all I could think about was Diane Keaton and baby boom. Do you remember that movie mm-hmm. where she's like mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. business lady and then her cousins die and they leave her a baby and she decides to move to the country and make applesauce. I loved this movie as a yeah. kid so much. <laughs> yeah. um, oh my God. I've probably seen it I like do. a thousand times, but that, that kind of like working girl, you know, like shoulder pads, like get in there ladies, like business lady kind of attitude. Um, and meanwhile, you have these in the nineties, um, Clinton being an example of this as a Democrat, who's just um, really reducing the social safety net. Um, and this sense of like individual responsibility, um, tough on crime policies, like talking about, you know, welfare queens that are milking the system, um, a lot of policies that give corporations a ton more power. And so that kind of pro market individualistic lifestyle feminism is what, um, what Frankie Mastrangelo calls it is what really emerges out mm-hmm. of the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. And so you've got these like, you know, branches of feminism that are unfolding, which then leads to this very like the girl boss is just like another leaf on that branch of hyper individualistic yep. lifestyle kind of approach. Um I don't know. I I thought Lee Stein talked about this too, as how dangerous this is to have this idea of woke capitalism. Did you read that? That would think it was the last Mm -hmm. paragraph she had that was Mm -hmm. so good. This, this is a paragraph. Woke capitalism lets the elites maintain the status quo while paying lip service to the demands of activists. And as ethical consumers, millennials get to feel like they're making a difference every time they go shopping until this country is willing to reckon with its extraordinary wealth inequality and our government requires corporations to pay their fair share in taxes, we will continue to see reincarnations of the girl boss because she's a manifestation of the American myth that says if you're not succeeding, it must be because you're not trying hard enough. And I thought Lee Stein was the most explicit about how race intersects with this. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the last mm-hmm. little quote I'll read from her is just the the white girl boss, and so many of them were white, sat at the unique intersection of oppression and privilege. She saw gender inequity everywhere she looked. This gave her something to wage war against. Racial inequity was never really on her radar. That was someone else's problem to solve. And that, I just thought of our very, very first episodes, like, as this all started, just thinking about the suffragists, the white suffragists that only could think about their gender. And anything else was yep. like some other problem, you know, it does just, it's the same. Yep. It is the same. It's so infuriating. <laughs> just this enmeshment of all that. Like, yeah. I mean, she also talks about just the, how she talks about the mix of capitalism with social justice mm-hmm. and the use of like, corporations because we don't trust our public institutions. We don't trust our politics. And so now we're looking to companies like Starbucks or wherever to 
kind of represent because now corporations are people according to citizens mm-hmm. united and so that's where the money is and that's where the influence comes from and so that's where we've turned to instead of recognizing that the majority of the problem comes from capitalism itself no matter how much these companies like put out their like pride flags during mm-hmm. the right month or their you know they do their education for black history month or whatever they're still making money off of it it's still they're doing something because it's profitable not because it's the right thing to do and it's this continuation of working within systems that are broken and fucked mm-hmm. up and made to function off of inequality you can't ever fix anything within that system yeah Well, it makes me actually think yeah. about the companies that have come out to say that they will, you know, support employees getting abortions. And then this an article I saw showed mm-hmm. all the money that they had given to elected officials campaigns who support ending abortion rights or reproductive justice. So it's like, well, you yeah. cannot have it both ways, you know? Um, yeah. Well, and this is actually probably a good segue. So So you have Beyonce, my friend, my good friend Beyonce. You have her performing at the MTV Music <laughs> Video Awards. You have Emma Watson's speech. And then 2013 is when um, Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg publishes the book Lean In, her memoir that was a bestseller. It sold more than 4 million copies worldwide. There's like a nonprofit that got set up that in like Lean In circles that got started. Although they're like kind of like consciousness raising circles but apparently it was a, a role where you could only talk about positive stories. It oh, seems yes. like maybe not <laughs> the point of bringing people together but very on brand for for this woman. Mm-hmm. Um so do you want to learn a little bit about Sheryl Sandberg? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've never read the book. No, and I actually I meant to read it for this purpose and then I was like god, I don't know. I mean, I yeah. still honestly probably will because I feel like it's not fair to critique something that I haven't read. But honestly, mm-hmm. like regardless of the what she says in the book, I think what I was able to find out just about her life the and impact of yeah, it. and what what she says in TED Talks and what how she responds to interviewer questions like I don't know how much more new information I would get from the book. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But I will say yeah. I feel bad that I didn't read it. Okay. A lot of this comes from an article in The New Yorker. They kind of let it called a woman's place. Um, but then other bits and pieces from other places. So she was born in 1969 in Washington, D.C. Her family, when she was really young, moved to Florida, to North Miami Beach. Her mom was a grad student um, who then it looks like maybe didn't finish her degree because she had children and decided to stay home with the kids, but was like a, like a French teacher. And then her doctor was her dad. Her dad was a doctor, I think an ophthalmologist. Um, so like a, you know, well-off family mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. were Jewish and they were really involved in a lot of work against anti-Semitism there they actually were working with the South Florida Conference on Soviet Jewry and would help people who were coming from the Soviet Union to the United States um they just i don't know i thought that was interesting so i don't know mm-hmm. activist parents i guess in some ways so she goes to public school growing up and then went to Harvard for undergrad she majored in economics which my husband's an economist and they're He's the first to tell you that his discipline is like full of creeps and 
very much like a <laughs> male dominated field. She took Lawrence Summers class in public sector economics. He would go on to become secretary of treasury and actually like when he meets her as a student is super impressed with her. Apparently in that class, she did not speak or raise her hand, but received the highest midterm and final grade and impressed him in that way. And I was just like, ew, there's something gross mm-hmm. about like gross a woman who never that. speaks, but is smart. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so we'll give her the best. I don't grade. know. I don't know. <laughs> what do we learn from uh, that? Um, but she, you know, like had this reputation of being super organized and very thoughtful. And he ends up serving as her thesis advisor, um, on how economic inequality contributes to spousal abuse. And then, um, she founded a group called Women in Economics and Government. And he was like an advisor or supported it somehow. Although she, at least according to this New Yorker article, claims that she was not a feminist. The goal of the group, she says, was just to get more women to major in government and economics. Which I'm like, well, isn't that a feminist yeah. goal? I don't know. People, that yeah. word is loaded. I get it. Mm. So, okay. Yeah, there's something about that word that people a lot just going can't on. get themselves. Um, then yeah. she was like top of her class. Her Phi Beta Kappa induction had separate ceremonies for men and women, which I thought was strange. But the at her ceremony... They gave a speech called feeling like a fraud, whoever the woman was that like the graduation speaker. And she felt like really inspired by that speech and felt like, yes, that resonates with me. And she had felt like that, you know, the whole time she was in this program, even though she graduated with high marks in the top of her class that um, she totally got it, you know, and felt like, oh, yes, I, that, I understand yeah. that. Um, and then the article says, um, Sandberg says she eventually realized that women, unlike men, encountered trade-offs between success and likability. The women had internalized self-doubt as a form of self-defense. People don't like women who boast about their achievements. The solution, she began to think, lay with the women. She blamed them more for their insecurities than she blamed men for their insensitivity or their sexism. And that is basically like her worldview, I think, in mm-hmm. uh Mm -hmm. And it's hard because it's not that I don't think there's truth to that. You know, I, as someone who's grappled with like imposter syndrome or lack of car, you know, I get that also not my fault. (laughs) Like that's right. Not, um, I was going to say, I can understand it without buying the line that it's the individual's problem. Or like my responsibility now, right? Like if only I just did X then I wouldn't, like if I just was more demanding, you know, um, yeah. yeah, for sure. So 1991, Summers becomes the chief economist of the World Bank, recruits her to be a research assistant. He is a huge figure in her career, like very, very influential mentor who's who's like opening a lot of doors for her, giving her a lot of opportunities. So she works at the World Bank for a couple of years. Then she goes to Harvard Business School, gets a job at McKinsey, this like big consulting firm, like a business consulting firm. Um, she's married really briefly to some businessmen, but then they get divorced. Um, 1995 Summers becomes the deputy treasury secretary in the Clinton administration. And so she, he asks her to be his chief of staff. She's in her twenties and she says, yes. Mm -hmm. And then people were commenting that, um, you know, there'd be like a meeting with a lot of men that were more senior and a lot of women who were more junior. And they would, the women would sit like, on the outskirts of the room. And so as chief of staff, she would often like invite women literally to sit at the same table. Um, Then Mm -hmm. Summers becomes the actual treasury secretary. And then at 29, she becomes his chief of staff. Um, 
of course, Democrats lose the 2000 election. George W. Bush becomes president. So then Sheryl Sandberg moves to Silicon Valley at the start of the tech boom. And Google pursues her. It was very small at the time. And I think probably felt really risky to like devote her career to that. Um, like this department had like four people working in it to, to sell text ads that would appear next to the search results. And so she um, mm. takes over that division and pretty soon it starts making a ton of money um, and basically helps grow Google. She was part of the deal that got AOL to make Google its search, search engine, um, which was like a massive reason Google took off. So she, I didn't, I, I'm embarrassed. Mm-hmm. I didn't know she had worked at Google. Um, yeah. she, in 2005, fortune invited her to the magazine's most powerful women summit, which was an annual gathering of several hundred women that were powerful in like government and business. And she attended, but she thought the title was embarrassing and refused to list it on the web-based calendar she shared with her colleagues. Oh, okay. (laughs) Strange, I think. And then Mm -hmm. she Mm -hmm. meets... Well, actually had known this guy for a long time. They'd been friends and then they, you know, go from being friends to more than friends and they get married in 2004. They have their first child a year after, and that's like becoming a mother. She starts to notice working mom problems and what has been going on Mm -hmm. with colleagues that had been dropping out of the workforce after they became mothers, um, she said that in her six years at Google, she had hired scores of male and female executives, but the men, quote, the men were getting ahead. This is Cheryl Sandberg talking. The men were banging down the door for new assignments, promotions, the next thing to do, the next thing that stretches them. And the women, not all, most, you talk them into it. Don't you want to do this? I just like, mm-hmm. as a working mom of two kids, this makes me mad to read this, honestly. Uh, okay. <laughs> then she speaks at a TED Women conference and is addressing this, I guess, problem of working moms. And she said, first, women need to sit at the table. Um, She noticed that 57% of men entering the workforce negotiate their salaries, but only 7% of women do likewise. Of course, none of this is disaggregated beyond the gender binary. It's just men, women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then second, her advice was make sure your partner is a real partner, which of course presumes partner, like presumes that you're not a single Mm -hmm. mom. Um, and she's pointing out the very real gender disparities, like even in partners where it's a more feminist dude that often the woman is still doing more of the housework or childcare or whatever. And then her third piece of advice was don't leave before you leave. When a woman starts thinking of having children, quote, she doesn't raise her hand anymore. She starts leaning back. In other words, if women don't get the job they want before they take a break to have children, they often don't come back. And then she talked about like herself feeling guilty and that she was really giving this advice to herself. But that was the first time that she talks about like leaning, you know, leaning back versus Mm -hmm. leaning in. And this Ted talk goes viral. This part, like honestly, almost made me fall out of my seat. She, before she gives this speech, she sends a draft of it to her friend, Gloria Steinem, who described the speech to her as terrific. A summary of what we both want a world where half of homes are run by men, especially raising children and half our institutions are run by women, especially armies. I was shocked that Gloria Steinem was like thumbs up. Yeah, really, truly. I like can't wrap my mind around that, but I don't know. I, I'm not having dreams about my friend Gloria Steinem. Maybe, maybe I will tonight and I'll figure it out. (laughs) Anyway, of course, in the moment, 
people are criticizing it too. Like it goes viral and people are like, yes, yes, yes. But there are always people criticizing it to say, well, first of all, you are very rich. You have a nanny, Mm -hmm. you have staff Mm -hmm. at work, like you have a partner, you have uh, like all of these things that make parenting a million times easier. Um, There honestly didn't seem to be as much criticism in the time of also her whiteness, but I think that's definitely something to think about. And then people pointed to the -hmm. the fact that she had this sponsor, that there's research that shows um, like how important it was that Larry Summers mentored her and like shepherded her through these opportunities that clearly she made the most of. Um, But there's research that shows that two-thirds of senior male executives are fearful of sponsoring a junior female executive and that half of women are fearful of accepting such sponsorship because there are all of these stigmas. Like if a woman accepts sponsorship from a more senior man, the presumption is that they're fucking. Right. Yeah. 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 Sleep your way to Yes. Like that's like the, oh, he must be looking out for you because he wants to get in your pants. You know, it's just a matter of time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Mm -hmm. there's, I think there are other reasons, but in this research, it was like, people are, it just nervous about that. So the, it doesn't happen very often. Um, but she was very, very lucky to have this super powerful, well-connected mentor. Um, Mm -hmm. okay. So then (laughs) there's, in the New Yorker article, he, the author is talking about this. Um, so she ends up moving to Facebook and becoming like Mark Zuckerberg's right hand person and really helping make Facebook yep. super profitable. Um, I don't know. What do you know about her time at Facebook? I don't, I really don't know much about it. I don't know how she got um, into it, how she got talked into going over there. She was there f- for a long time. I mean, I feel like it was only recently that Very she recent that she stepped away. Facebook. I think she was there a lot longer than even um, she expected to be. And it sounds like yeah, they describe when she and Zuckerberg like first were meeting that it was almost like dating, like trying to figure out if their philosophies merged, but that it he really appreciated what she brought to the table and um she was very successful there. But of course, Google or Facebook, um, hugely controversial platform that she helped make really successful. Yep. And even in the last few years, uh, as it was, you know, a tool that was used in Russian propaganda or the dissemination of misinformation, like, like all of this stuff that I'm not, you, know, you could argue is not making the world a better place in any way, shape or form, yeah. um, that she has also been part of this. So at, when she's at Facebook, uh, she, they have a women's leadership conference every year. And so the author, it sounds like was maybe sitting on in this meeting or was getting like recaps of this meeting and she's they're mapping things out and planning things. And Sandberg starts describing a talk she gave at the Harvard business school earlier after which all the women asked her personal questions, but all the men asked business questions. And so she Hmm. is telling the story and is critical of quote girl questions and Hmm. what constitutes and so there's a, like a little bit of pushback or discussion within her planning committee, like what constitutes a girl question? Like would asking about maternity leave be a girl question? And say, this is according to the mm-hmm. article, Sandberg and the female executives in the room said they thought it risked being a girl question if it was asked in a whiny way. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, um, and of course, yeah. I could find a lot... Um, a lot of 
frustration with Sheryl Sandberg from women of color writers, because she also then writes this book, Lean In. And I mentioned that's like a bestseller, you know, as she becomes more famous as a C-suite executive in the tech world, which is unusual. There aren't many women at all at her level, at that level. Uh, Mindy Hartz wrote for the memo and said, quote, leaning was well-intentioned and opened up the conversation, but you cannot effectively talk about leaning in for black or brown women without discussing the role that race plays and the barriers to even enter the room for a seat at the table. Lean in didn't talk about race and it was written from a white privileged woman's perspective for predominantly other white women. One size doesn't fit all. And Sandberg acknowledged her book left out women of color. Um, but then just like keeps returning back to the responsibility of like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, this is a quote from Sandberg. I think women should say, Hey, I know the data and I know you're probably paying a lot of attention to it, but I'm a woman or I'm a black woman. And on average we get paid 30% less. I want to make sure that you've benchmarked my offer to white men in this role. I'm sure you're doing that, but if you could double check that before I accept this job, I would really appreciate that. That's her advice (laughs) response to that advice. Uh, I mean, First of all, the ass kissing that's like implied in that. I'm sure you are. <laughs> I'm sure you're and not actually. You know, <laughs> yeah. Right. Like why? Yeah. Why would you even go that far? But also like then the assumption that if you just say that it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like you just have to ask for it and then they'll give it to you. Since when have structures of power ever just handed anything over because it was asked for? Mm-hmm. Like never once as, not as ever. if there's not a so cost. That's so disingenuous right. like there's going to be a cost for you to do that or that that for depending on your identity that there will be different consequences for asking that same question in the exact same tone it doesn't matter oh. well and mindy hearts this writer um in the memo says um this was her advice i was floored by it because it so glaringly ignores the power balance at play when you were on the receiving end of a job offer yes they want you to accept but every move you make in the acceptance process will contribute to your internal brand in that workplace. Personally, I'd be scared shitless to drop that challenge onto someone who I barely know and who's about to become my boss. Scared of being seen as difficult before my foot was even in the door. Scared of them rescinding the job offer. Scared of others finding out I made this request and being ostracized for it. I was amazed that Sandberg put this onus on women instead of insisting upon structural changes in the hiring process. When a woman of color is hired, it should just be part of the process to double check that she's being paid the same as a white man with similar qualifications. It should be a requirement, not something that the woman has to uncomfortably ask for, which I think is great. I also did not know this, but in 2018, Michelle Obama was promoting her book, Becoming, and was asked about Mm -hmm. this all. And she goes, that whole, so you can have it all? Nope, not at the same time. That's a lie. And it's not always enough to lean in because that shit doesn't work all the time. (laughs) Yep. No, it just doesn't. I mean, well, and this isn't just women of color, but also um, men of color at Google. There, for a while, there were these memos, like a bunch of um, high-profile resignations of of people of color, specifically black employees at Google, when Sheryl Sandberg was COO, that they they would make their resignation letters public. So Sandberg, so there's a memo. One of the memos that I read. Um, And it's anonymously posted. But um, this writer said, just then I remembered a mantra repeated at Google's orientation over and over like a magic spell. Bring your whole self to work. And he's talking about how co-workers were having conversations around like Black Lives Matter protests and police brutality. And the conversations were making him super uncomfortable because they were saying 
pretty awful things, you know, like disrespectful, disregarding things. So he says, I remembered this mantra about bring your whole self to work. And that's something that Sheryl Sandberg talks about all the time. Like I bring my whole self to work. Mm -hmm. That's what you need to do. But I knew better than to believe in magic. More importantly, my parents who lived through violent racism in the South before and after the civil rights movement taught me to use discretion with who I trusted. What if being honest backfires? What if my new team rejects me the way they rejected the protesters? What if I become like the other black employees who've been pushed out, um, pushed out of Google before realizing their potential? What if I become too different to be liked or be trusted? What if bringing my whole self to work means risking everything? And I think that same message has been echoed by people in the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with trans people, like, can I bring my identity as a non-cis person to work? Mm -hmm. Like, is that okay to do? Like, clearly not Mm -hmm. in a lot of circumstances. I mean, your whole person as Sheryl Sandberg is an accepted identity. Other people's whole person has certainly not been in many circumstances. Exactly. Um, yes, right. I will wrap it up with this. This is from a Washington Post editorial by Melissa Hira Grant, um, who wrote about lean in, especially for women of color, um, that I thought was really, really powerful. So she says, um, I still believe that women are attracted to feminist ideals beyond driving vanity projects. We don't find feminism only when we somehow win the leisure time to develop a political analysis. We do it because we can't afford not to. But when Sandberg asked the women in her movement to share only positive stories as the leading circle materials stipulate, where women always overcome the odds through their individual metal, when do women get a chance to identify the obstacles still in front of them, those structural barriers that do not melt before positive self-regard? Without naming that which is still not one, what is this movement actually struggling for? to make change or to be celebrated as women who adopt the mantle of change maker in Sandberg's world. It seems that the consciousness raised and solutions offered in lean in circles will be isolated to actions. Individual women can take to support their own ambitions and desires rather than wondering about the ambitions and desires of say the women who keep house for the women spending their time leaning in. There's simply no way Mm -hmm. for women to lean in without leaning on the backs of other women. Yeah. Yep. And that, I liked also wanted to bring up some points at the end of Amanda Mole's Atlantic mm-hmm. article that just touches on that idea of the structure of things as they are the way now. And she said, women are still people, which means we can respond in similar ways to the incentives and privileges of power that sometimes make male bosses tyrants or harassers or wealth hoarders. Slotting mostly white women into the power structures usually occupied by men does not de facto change workplaces, let alone the world for the better. If the structures themselves go untouched. Um, then she says, making women the new men within corporations was never going to be enough to address systemic racism and sexism, the erosion of labor rights, or the accumulation of wealth in just a few of the country's millions of hands, the broad abuses of power that afflict the daily lives of most people. Disasters disrupt the future people expected to have, but they also give those people the space to imagine a better one. Those who seek power most zealously might not be the leaders people need. As Americans survey a nation torn apart and make plans to stitch it back together, admitting this, at the very least, can be an easy first step in the much harder process of doing the things that actually work. Structural change is a thing that happens to structures, not within them. And I think that's the whole, the the girl boss mantra is, 
making those structures work for you as an individual. It's not about dismantling those structures so that they work for more people. And that's why Girl Boss has failed and will fail no matter how many times it's reborn because it is not addressing the structures that are the problem to begin well, with. I think it's why it's an encapsulation of white feminism, because that, that to me sums up white feminism is it's not intersectional. Yep. It's not considering all of the ways that people are suffering or marginalized or oppressed, that it's focused exclusively on the experiences of white women experiencing sexism. And as long as that's yep. your limited vision or you're a girl boss and you're just, you know, wanting to get as rich as white men do, how, like, in, in what world would that result in anything but like wealth and power for that one individual? Well, next time, the last like half of this, I want to tell you about Sophia Amoruso, who's the nasty mm-hmm. girl who coined the, the nasty term, girl seat, yeah. um, nasty gal, mm-hmm. um, coined the term girl boss, and then um, talk a little bit about the, the death of girl box, like how so many of these companies fell apart. So many of these women have resigned, been fired, etc. Um, and if okay. we can get into a little bit of the goopiness, that would be great. Um, I will just end on this. Oh, yes. This was another Atlantic title, an Atlantic article, Sheryl Sandberg and the crackling hellfire of corporate America. <laughs> yep. We'll just I love it, it already. Right there. Uh, thanks right. everybody. Have a okay. good week. So fun. Don't be a girl okay, boss. Talk to you next time. Bye. Don't do it. <laughs> Bye.